Hi, it's Justine Harcourt to Tourville, and we're still at South by with our last podcast of our South by Southwest series. We're going to be talking with Renee Pennell of Kaleidoscope, and he's going to be sharing some of his thoughts and some of his findings in trying to find the best financial model for creators and makers of VR. In my eyes, this makes him a hero because funding is one of the hardest problems in the industry. So stay tuned and let's hear his thoughts as he gives it to us live at South by Southwest. So welcome, Renee. We're here at South by Southwest 2019. And you just gave a great keynote, I hear, on the state of VR and funding. You want to give us a little heads up over that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, do we have a name for the podcast? What's the podcast called? Well, right now it's just virtual VRTL, you know. Virtual podcast. <laughs> virtual. Cool. I dig it. Um, but we've, we've talked before. You did a, a really great interview with me before. So I feel like I'm in capable hands. Uh <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I gave a, a presentation today uh, uh, at South By. It was at the ungodly early hour of 9.30 in the morning. At South By, that's not really fair. <laughs> no, no, no. I was super impressed. Uh, anybody came out. Uh, but they did. We had a really uh, neat crowd, lots of great questions. Um, and what the presentation was about was uh, it's kind of an update on the research and design process that I've been under... Uh, underway on for the last like two or three years. So we we started Kaleidoscope as an organization with the mission to help artists raise money for projects. We we knew because I, I come from a family of artists. Uh, I've been an artist myself, a uh, filmmaker, and it's so hard to be an artist. It's so hard to raise money. It's, uh, it, you know, almost every artist I know struggles. Um, and struggles more than I think that they need to. I mean, certain things need to be hard. Uh, and I think it's okay to struggle if you're an artist earlier in your career. But I, I think there's too many artists that I know that are at the top of their game creatively. Um, amazing, amazing artists that still financially struggle. Um, well, when you're trying to make good art, it, it, you're right. It shouldn't be so difficult to have messages or emotions or things that need to be heard especially against a society that's full of science and technology. You need a, another voice, another um, vibe coming into your, your sphere. Yeah, artists uh, provide so much value to society. If you think about uh, uh, scientists, like you brought up scientists, like, you know, there's lots of, probably not as many as there should be, but there's lots of R&D labs, you know, research and development labs where, and out of the universities as well, where scientists and engineers uh, dream up new technologies and they can patent that technology. And so when in 10, 15, you know, uh, 20 years, that, uh, that bleeding edge of technology becomes used in mainstream products and services, uh, those early developers and those early scientists can see profit from that. You know, they have something to gain and, uh, artists, there's no equivalent. Absolutely. Artists are doing that R and D for us. You know, they're on the frontier. They're the ones that are pushing not only the, the medium, uh, whatever medium they happen to be working in, but they also give us perspective about who we are, our place in the world, uh, how we ought to live. Uh, artists are our reflection. They're our mirror. And that's an incredibly valuable service. And they don't right now stand to gain much from being at that frontier. And I think that's fundamentally unfair. So we, 
knew that kind of in our bones. And so that's so what we've we, done the scientist thing and have done research. Yeah, we've done research. <laughs> uh, we did research. We did a lot of research and a lot of conversations with a lot of smart people and uh, about, about this problem. So like, you know, we knew that the f- and we didn't want to assume what the problems were with the funding landscape, which is and we just knew it was hard to be an artist. So we we're like, well, let's learn how the current system works before we even think about trying to um, imagine or be so presumptuous as to uh, uh, reinvent it. Um, so we spent uh, about three years executive producing projects. We'd, we'd become friends with artists. Uh, we'd uh, fall in love with their, their project. And then we'd sign on to executive produce it. And then we'd uh, help raise the money. So through that process, we raised a little over $4 million for some really fantastic projects. Uh, we helped raise uh, over a million dollars for Spheres, uh, which we executive produced with Darren Aronofsky, and it was directed by Eliza Vignett. And, and one at Venice. One uh, at Venice. Prize and- a beautiful, beautiful project uh, with a lot of uh, tremendously talented people. Atlas Five, uh, Arno Colinar, uh, Jess Engel, uh, uh, Dylan Golden at uh, Protozoa, just... Uh, yeah, all star. Anyways, big project. All-stars. Loved it. It was amazing. <laughs> Great experience. I was going on and on about that way too much. I just, uh, I, uh, I, I'm really proud of that one. I'm proud of Battle Scar too. Battle Scar is another project we did that I just fucking love. I love the team behind it. It's about two uh, uh, runaways in New York who form a punk rock band in the '70s. Wow. And it's it, it moves like cinema. Uh, the first episode premiered at Sundance a year ago, 2018. And the second and third episode <clears throat> will be done this year. So that it's a trilogy. It's a three, three, three act thing. And uh, man, that's going to blow your socks off. Battles so, car. Okay. Huge tangent on the, pro- so we spent okay, so- three years <laughs> fundraising for these projects to see how it worked. Uh, and it did work, but it didn't work very well. It was way too complex, way too long, and it wasn't repeatable. So like, like you'd, too complex in the sense that like you'd have to piece funding together from like seven or eight different sources. So you you know that's everything a lot from of conversation seven or eight so, times, and everybody has to have a different pitch. If you're right. pitching to a granting organization versus you're pitching to a company like Google for like you know from their, are you mm-hmm. pitching them from which department? There's like ten different yeah. departments. They right. all want to hear a different thing. It's completely overwhelming, in its complexity and the number of things you have to get good at, uh, and all of that meant it was too slow. I mean, it would take us years to raise money for projects. Years. Uh, just for one project. Just even. for one project. I mean, yeah. we'd be raising for multiple projects, so they'd sort of, you know, they'd happen. But, you you know, I've been in development on one project for almost five years, and it's an amazing project, and it's just one of those things. It takes a long time to piece the funding together for things. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's too slow. And then the final thing that uh, was really challenging about it was that it wasn't repeatable. You know, you'd spend all of this time fundraising for a project and you'd get to the end of it and be like, we, we signed this deal. Fantastic. Let's get some money for the next project. The, 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 the rules of the game had changed. The people that you had developed relationships with at a company would move to a different department. What they were funding at all would change or if they were funding at all, some companies would get in, some companies would get out. So you'd be like starting from zero with your next project. So all that added up to it just being unnecessarily hard. It was like, those didn't seem like things that needed to happen. If you had a project that was fucking awesome, uh, and there's consensus in the industry that it's fucking awesome, like you should be able to raise money for it. It's just piecing it together and having the, the business intelligence that where you know exactly the moment that a particular company is going to fund a particular thing and know the exact right person. Like you can build software to do that, 
but that's such a hard problem. I feel like the, the best we could do is like, you know, maybe a 50% improvement on the current system. And that's not radical enough. Like, so I think what it you're saying is it, it, this would help solve some of the problem that's not necessarily, you know, it's all, usually the, everyone says the problem with VR, it's all about the headset. No. Actually, part of the reason that it's the funding. killer content isn't getting out there is funding. And, and so what does Kaleidoscope want to do to help <laughs> fix that? So those are the problems. So, uh, God, I'm like, this is the, like the longest winded way of saying what we're working on, but I feel like you need the context. <laughs> we need like the context. Talking. So, so that was the problem, right? So we, right. we did that for a couple of years and we're like, okay, we've got a, a good idea of how the current system works and, and the, the, the shortcomings of it. So let's try to think of a solution, right? And so the first thing that I thought of was, okay, well, let's do a deep dive on crowdfunding. Crowdfunding's been a- around for a while. It's pretty established. It's done a lot of good for artists. There's a lot of things to love about crowdfunding. Um, Wasn't the first VR piece that, that was really incredible, El Casmanata? How would you say that in Spanish? The piece from Spain was crowdfunded. Which, um, uh, which did, uh, the cosmonaut. The cosmonaut. Oh, the future lighthouse. Yeah. One. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I haven't seen that, but I know future lighthouse, and we mourn their losing. Their lost. Yes. Their losing. What the fuck is that? <laughs> they're losing. We're losing them. Yeah. We're we're bereaving their their losing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm bummed that they went out of business, and that's that's a totally a sign a of funding issue. A funding issue, right? Like it's it's the biggest problem uh, that any artist faces is is funding, and I think uh, for this industry to survive, we need to have. Totally uh, increase in funding by an order of magnitude uh, so that bigger projects, more ambitious projects uh, can be developed. Yeah, so crowdfunding was one. Yeah, we looked it- into crowdfunding. Uh, lots to like about it, but ultimately the, the issue with, with rewards-based crowdfunding, which is the, you know, the <laughs> majority of how crowdfunding works, uh, is uh, most projects can only repeatably raise around $50,000. So if you're a film project, a video game project, uh, an immersive art project, uh, you know, it's a roughly give or take $50,000. And that's enough for a demo. It's enough for a prototype. Um, but it's not enough to make a, a big professional thing. Now, there's some outliers for sure in reward-based crowdfunding, but you know, Kickstarter is really good about publishing their numbers. And if you look at them, the average is, is around there, which again, is fantastic for a certain type of project at a certain stage of development, but it's not enough to support a studio producing sizable, meaningful work. Uh, Keyword meaningful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, okay, so that was the issue with crowdfunding. So the next thing we looked at was, okay, well, maybe, um, maybe we, we find a way to make investing in, in art and entertainment projects the thing. Because if, if people are only motivated to chip in $50 to a Kickstarter, maybe if they could do that same thing, which is, you know, put $50 into a project and get that warm, fuzzy feeling of being, you know, backing an artist that you like. But then you add on top of that. And if it does well, you get uh, a, a piece of the pie. You get some of that revenue. We think that that's a, a psychological or a meaningful difference, a substantive difference enough to get people to uh, make those five, you know, $50 checks into a $500 check. And, and that would get us to somewhere in that ballpark of uh, that order of magnitude increase in funding that I think we need. The issue with that, though, there's an issue. There's an issue. It sounded good, right? Yeah, yeah. I was, it sounded really I was good. Going for it. Each Equity. of these, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you with all the maybe solutions because I think the final solution mashes these up in some interesting ways. But the so the issue with with just making it an investment is that shares don't value or capture uh, the impact that uh, art makes on society or culture. Like if you if you if you look at the total value that a project generates revenue is only part of the picture. The other part is 
how much does this move culture forward? How much does this advance the art form? How much does this change society in a, a, a good way, hopefully? It's always the intangibles, and it's so yeah. hard to quantify. It is, and, and it's hard to measure, right? So if you start to say, okay, well, it's missing part of the picture, and the full picture is uh, has to include social and cultural impact, uh, how do you measure that? How do you count it? How do you quantify it? And, and that was, I, I was the like, number of bumper stickers on a car. I, know. I, know. I, mean, and I wouldn't <laughs> trust any kind of like measure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Almost any measure besides one, a market measure. Ah. So the thing that markets are really good at, and I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely super skeptical of capitalism, but one thing that markets do really, really well, uh, is they are able to take complex sets of data and, rationalize them into uh, sort of an ultra, ultra compressed answer on the value of a thing, right? Uh, and easy to digest formats called numbers. And easy, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. What's the cost of the... So, so that is actually uh, a way to do it if you look at the art market uh, business model. Right. So in the art market, you have a work of art, a painting, uh, or maybe a, a series of lithographic prints, and you have scarcity. There's a finite number of them, right? It's, uh, and typically in the art world, it's you know, one to maybe 100 is, is the typical range. Um, but that scarcity uh, and the fact that you have you know, a market of people trying to figure out how much do I value that work of art, um, well, essentially what they're doing is, is valuing cultural impact. What do I think the significance of this artist is going to be 10 years from now? Uh, what do I think the significance of this specific art piece uh, and do I think it's going to appreciate in value? Um, and if they do, then it means that it has cultural impact because uh, over a long enough time scale, markets are fairly good at establishing that. Uh, you know, they have a way of picking artists out of history and over time getting it right. The problem is, is that for most artists in this model, uh, it's not in a time frame that benefits them. Most artists like sort of peak after they die. Uh, you know, Van Gogh is like completely uh, uh, poverty stricken in his life. Uh, Orson Welles struggled for most of his life to raise money. Uh, but eventually markets tend to get it right uh, uh, in the art, art world, I think. But regardless, it was an interesting mechanism. And I was like, okay, that's a piece of the pie that I hadn't had before. This is a way to value, uh, value a cultural uh, and social impact. So the question then became, what if you took this art world market and you scaled it up? What if instead of doing just one to 100 limited edition prints, you had you know, one to one million or more? Um, and what if owning those limited edition prints entitled you to certain rights, um, certain rights that would maybe tickle your fancy if you were a fan, like uh, associate producer credit, like uh, having uh, uh, you know, the ability to attend a premiere, uh, those sort of warm fuzzies. And then you could also bundle financial incentives. So, okay, so that's kind of like the crowdfunding model, right? The the little bonuses you get for That's like the rewards. Yeah, the so you fuzzy get the, rewards. The fuzzy rewards, mm -hmm. so you can... You can pull the best part of, of crowdfunding in and the okay. fact that you can reach out to a large number of people, but we'll get to that in a second, uh, with financial incentive, um, both in terms of the kind that uh, exists in the art market where by owning this you know, limited edition, uh, if, if you believe the, the work of art is going to have greater cultural significance in the future, that should appreciate and increase in value. So it, it holds an investment uh, value, you know, like any other investment asset, you know, uh, it has the appreciation potential. 
Uh, and then the other thing is that since it sort of falls into private property law, you can uh, you can make money from owning that print in the same way that if I have a painting, I could rent it to you, uh, I could lease it to you, uh, you know, uh, you can do that with you the can same, trade. With you can me. trade, yeah. <laughs> so you can do all these things that um, potentially give you a source of of revenue from that ownership as well. Um, so that that gets the best of all worlds, which is I get the warm fuzzies, I get uh, uh, a potential investment asset. Uh, and I get something that could also bring in revenue in, in the meantime, uh, which starts to look like something that is really potentially interesting. It's a long and, shot. But, and you're moving culture forward. And you're moving culture forward. Yeah, because what it uh, so basically, like from a practical standpoint, what we what we plan to do is uh, build this as a major feature set on top of the Kaleidoscope platform where projects will uh apply to our review committee, they'll select uh, probably initially pretty small number, probably like five to 10 projects that this review committee thinks are, uh, you know, artistically amazing, culturally relevant. um, And uh, at least a a decent percentage of them will probably like 60% will have revenue generating potential, where the other like 20, 30, 40% uh, will be projects that have no revenue potential projects that are either like bizarre, uh, super artistic things to, uh, you know, social justice documentaries that we want to give away instead of sell. Um, so uh, transformative experiences. Tra- yeah. Things that are not focused on, uh, Our money. on making mm-hmm. money and in yeah. fact would be inappropriate to charge for. We want to make sure. And that's, and that's what excites me about this model is that even those projects, it's not charity. If you buy a limited edition print and one of those things that has no potential to generate revenue, fine. But if in 10 years we're still talking about that project and that artist has gone on to do amazing fucking things, you've owned one of their early pieces of work and that can appreciate in value. So it gives you an actual economic incentive to put money into things that are fucking weird art projects or socially relevant, interesting stuff. Um, and that's, that, that's, that, that, that's the part that really jazzes me and gets me super pumped. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I like, Renee, that I know Kaleidoscope cares about, in including in all that mix, when you talked about the review committee, one thing I know you look look at, um, which is a little unlike our Hollywood um, white male executives that are all over the place, is is you do include uh, gender diversity and different types of not the same segment that we're used to hearing from. You want to give me a little insight into that? Yeah, so... Um Diversity in all things is super important to me. Uh, so diversity in terms of who's creating the art, uh, the diversity in terms of uh, our review committee, like who's who's judging that art, who's in a position to um, uh, to make any kind of decisions that'll impact impact artists. Um, we want uh, diversity in the types of content that's made. We want diversity in the sense that some you know, projects really are amazing and they're totally commercial. And we want other projects that have no commercial potential. We want things that are documentary. We want things that are you know, fantastical. We want, uh, we want diversity in terms of uh, the full stack at the company. Like the mediums and the, the, the way the actual presentations are done? Yeah, yeah. And when what hardware they're making it for. It's Because it, you know, it, I just believe that fundamentally you're going to make better decisions when you have... Uh, when you have that mix of ideas and that mix of backgrounds and those mix of people, um, you're, you're going to have less blind spots. Uh, and that's, that's a big thing for when you're, when you're judging artwork because it's so subjective. Right. Right. Um, and uh, if, if you don't have a lot of diversity in those decision-making bodies, 
uh, you're going to miss great projects. So it's like, uh, uh, I'm doing so it for that, like moral reasons, but I'm also doing it for entirely practical reasons, which is that and, like and good economic thought too. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> diversity is proven, you know, the more diverse your uh, team, the better your results tend to be. So, I mean, it's an economically sound decision as well. It is. Well, and it goes back, I don't know if you know, like have ever done much research about the wisdom of crowds, um, but it's this fascinating phenomenon that uh, the the more diverse and large the decision-making body is, and actually the more it's made up of non-experts, the better those results are. And it's like famously borne out with things where you have like people at a a county fair judging the weight of a cow. And you'd think (laughs) that if you took the average of expert opinions, cow owners, that that result would actually be more accurate. But in fact, they've found with many variants on this experiment that it's the opposite. People that know nothing about cows, little children, old people, Mm -hmm. city people, random people, people that know a lot about cows. If, If you mix it all up like that, the average of their guesses of the weight of the cow is better. Um, so yeah, I mean, diversity is, is, it's not, it's not intuitive almost, uh, how, how important it is, uh, and how effective it is. Well, that's why I think it's noteworthy that you do include it into your process. <clears throat> so after you go through the review process and what is the one tangible people investors get to take home, what will they be receiving? That's a really good question. Um, so when somebody buys one of these limited edition prints, first of all, we're still designing this. And that's actually like today marks the first day of our open solicitation for feedback on this idea. Oh, which it's is a why debut. It's a debut. <laughs> it is. I mean, I've been like having private conversations with people about this, but I haven't really started to openly talk about and advocate and think this is a good idea on the record. And so, <laughs> well, thank you for being so brave. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, it took me three or four years to get to a place where I felt like I had enough insight and, and knowledge to even prescribe something. But um, we don't have it all designed. So I'm going to say that as a, okay. a caveat. But the way we're imagining it being designed is that there's a commissioning phase for a project. So this is a project that hasn't been produced that's raising money. Okay. And you buy, uh, you know, some number of limited edition prints of a project. And essentially what you'd get in the first version is just a legal document. It's the equivalent of... <laughs> that's um, not really sexy artwork. <laughs> no, legal draft. <laughs> no, it's a legal draft. It would be something that's it's modeled after uh, uh, probably something that looks a bit like uh, a licensing agreement mixed up with uh, a certificate of authenticity from the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, fine art world mixed up with, with uh, an equity <laughs> uh, investment contract. But we're going to try to make it human readable. We're going to try to make it very short and we're going to try to make it very explicit in terms of you own the legal copy of this project that is in production or you will own it. You know, you own it now, but you'll you know receive all these benefits as soon as it's completed. Um, and that'll be the thing you walk away with. Eventually, we're going to probably do something in the blockchain space uh, to make that legal document have that much more trust. But, you know, legal fiction has got us pretty far in society. And there's a lot of weight and power and just a well-worded uh, document. And I think that's the first version of this is that people will buy these limited edition prints, get a contract <laughs> uh, proving they own that limited edition print, and then um, be the recipient of certain benefits as soon as the project is done. Now, once the project is done, people will be able and should be able to buy and sell those limited edition prints. So we're going to be building a market where people that participated in, you know, the uh, uh, commissioning phase can sell their their copy of it. Um, and at that point, once a project's done, uh, there will be other 
you know, digital assets that are associated with it. So um, once the project is finished, as someone who owns a limited edition print, you'll probably have things like early access to it. So you'll, you'll you know, maybe three months before it's released to the general public, you'll get a copy. Um, you'll also probably, I'm going to encourage the artists to do special features that's just available to people with a, a limited edition print. Um, and then there'll be also things that are not transferable that are only um, something that you get if you are in the commissioning phase, like credit. So if you, you know, commission a piece, you would be, you know, included in the credit, something along the lines of an associate producer credit, and that's non-transferable because it's just not practical. And it also gives somebody an incentive to put money in on the commissioning phase. Um, I forget what your question was. I could go on about this for like three hours. <laughs> well, in a way, I was kind of, I, I, I think it, when we say print, the first thing I think of is... You know, the, the animation cells, you, you could buy like right. an, an original cell of, of That's a physical white. print. Yeah. yeah, physical print. And in the film industry, you you know, the the reels of film that you'd ship to, you know, places, are, they're called prints. And so we're getting a virtual print. Yeah, <laughs> a virtual print that is sort of like an empty frame in the commissioning phase. And then <laughs> and then once it's done, you get to fill that empty frame with the actual the actual artwork and owning that original. And I mean, and, and it, I think it's sometimes it's easier to wrap your head around this when you think about um the fact that we've been grappling with these ideas ever since we had mechanical reproduction. So as soon as we had like high quality prints, basically, uh, it started to blur the line of what was an original anyway. So there's this this idea that a form, form that you have, the, you know, you have an original, then you have a limited edition print, and then you can have an open edition print. Right. And that all these things can coexist and you can all you can be looking at the same painting in these different mediums, but they have different value. Right. Like if it's one of a kind, the original, that's worth something. If they do, uh, if the artist makes a limited edition print, that's worth something else. And then an open edition that you can pick up in, uh, you know, an art book or something is you know the lowest tier of that and but those all three exist and it's the same media right right so with digital entertainment or any form of art that you know all art is basically digital uh, i think that same idea will will bear a lot of fruit where you have probably the original the master um, that comes with certain rights that the artist owns. Then you have a limited edition set of prints that comes with a different set of bundled rights and privileges. Um, and then you have something that the general public can consume, um, which I imagine to be a reproduction or a rental of those limited edition prints. Um, hence the ability of those people generating revenue um, from something they own. Um, no, no, that's exciting. But what happens then after people, the artists have come to you, they've been reviewed, they've been selected, commissioned, two things. What do they have to do to be chosen? Like what kind of, do they have to have an idea on paper? Do they have to have a pilot? What, I mean, what, do, what's the best thing to, to be selected? So, yeah, so everything that we've been talking about is this far out, like next thing that we're building, but we do a lot of other stuff at Kaleidoscope. Okay. We, we're always trying to find opportunities for artists. So, you know, at South by, we have uh, a showcase where we've selected seven projects that are presenting work and development and a chic house. I hear and a pretty cool house <laughs> where we, we host a lot of events and, uh, and then we, we're going to do the first look event with with Riot this summer, um, which is a marketplace event. And all of that side of the business, the, the majority of what we've been doing up to now is just about connecting artists with industry people that can fund their work. Um, and so we still do that. And, and doing that has a review process where artists submit their work to be accepted for those opportunities. And we've put together a review body of uh, about 120 people now that review all the projects that are submitted for these opportunities. Uh, what we look for is different depending on the opportunity, but there's definitely consistencies. Uh, one of them is uh, it's really important to have a, a project video, uh, something that people can watch 
and get a sense of what your thing is in a couple minutes. Either that or you have to have like really amazing people on board, like very, very well-known talent. Um, so we're talking beyond a storyboard and uh, beyond, beyond a story bell. Yeah. You need to have something that's like a couple minutes that people can watch and like feel like they're in the story. Okay. And have it be at pretty close to the visual fidelity that the, the finished project will be. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be in VR. Okay. Um, uh, with with uh, the exception being, uh, if it's your first VR project, it has to be in VR. <laughs> like if you've done a couple of projects that have done quite well in VR, that checks the box of okay, they know how to make VR. I don't need to worry about that. I can just you know watch a, a video and get a gist of it. Um, yeah, but if if it's your first one, you have to have something really really good in VR to convince anybody that you're going to be good at making VR. How how much do you think people? Um, it's a range, but have to spend them or raise themselves before they can even get to a commission to be adjudicated? Depends on how much of their project they can create themselves. So there's definitely some artists that, uh, like Isaac Cohen, uh, Daniel Ernst. um, uh, I mean, yeah, there's a ton of uh, uh, artists that um, can do most of the work and prefer to do most of the work themselves, Um, in which case it, it requires very little money. Um, otherwise it's, you know, you're typically gonna have to spend, you know, 10, 15,000, $20,000 sort of developing it, like getting the concept art together. Um, if you're trying to get talent on board, that just takes time. You know, you're going to have to pay somebody like $5,000 to broker a deal. Even if the deal is you not paying that artist any money up front, but just to have them go through the hassle of like signing a piece of paper, you're going to have to pay them, you know, another 5,000. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, it's hard to do the development work okay. for under ten to twenty thousand um, dollars, unless you can do it all yourself. But if okay. you're actually like hiring people to work on it and sort of going that route, it's it's going to cost about that. Okay, so they have done that. They've invested, hopefully, um, whatever they they needed to, and they're selected. Then what happens? Then what do you envision? Well, it depends on what the opportunity is that they submitted for. Um, But the goal of everything that we do is to help artists get money. So that side of the business is trying to achieve that through professional networking, where we, you know, try to provide opportunities and events and moments where those, you know, uh, relationships can form and uh, artists and potential funding sources can get to like each other and trust each other. Uh, and that's how deals get done. Well, and how do you envision the platform? Because I, I think you're in an early stage of developing the platform physically. Um, what What's going to happen there? So right now on the platform, the main thing that you do is professional networking. So it's sort of like the, the goal of it right now is to have it be kind of like attending one of our market events where it's bringing interesting people together. So everybody on the platform is uh, vetted. They have to apply in that review body our review, review committee that uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, they select uh, um, uh, new members. Uh, and then on the platform, you can um, make a, a beautiful uh, uh, profile for projects that you've worked on. Uh, and that's a good tool for getting in front of uh, potential industry people and starting conversations. So that's that's essentially what you do with the platform now. In the f- near future, we're going to um, make... Uh, posting and discovering these types of opportunities that we already do a lot easier um, and hopefully do a lot more of them. 
um, both ones that we manage as well as other people manage. Um, basically, any opportunity that would advance an artist or a project, um, giving the community a place to uh, submit those and add those. Um, and then for artists and projects to apply um, for whatever those opportunities might be. So that's one feature set that will, I think, um, make the platform a lot more valuable. Um, and then uh, eventually uh, we want to uh, allow artists to raise money directly on platform with something like we talked about in the first part of the conversation. Um, that's uh, probably the most legally and <laughs> technically challenging thing. So we're going to um, you know, it took us a long time to come up with an idea that we liked enough to start to pursue. We're going to do uh, the first version of it probably this year, but it's going to be largely off platform, largely just with paper. Um, and uh, and then little by little, we're, we're going to try to build that into a more robust uh, feature that can be open to more and more artists on the platform. But initially, it's going to be a very limited number of handpicked projects that will pilot uh, with this limited edition thing and prove that it can work. Oh, that's exciting. It really is exciting. Um, can we go back into the very beginning part when we talked about the research you found? And have you found research? Because it's it's a terrible time for VR in some ways, and it's a great time for VR in other ways. And do you want to talk uh, when I mean the terrible part in some ways? It has to, a lot to do with the shifting and figuring out things about funding, which is clearly the hardest part. But on the other hand, plenty of people are able to do this. And there's a lot of ways to see VR. It's not only that you have to watch it with headset. There's LBE. Do you have any anything you're doing in that kind of space as well? Yeah, so I actually think that we're in a really pivotal moment in the industry right now where uh, the first set of projects that are going to make a lot of money are in production now. So we've seen a couple of projects uh, do really well. Um, uh, and make you know multiple millions of dollars, uh, probably not much above ten million. So you know, I think I think the delta for a really successful project is somewhere between one and ten. Uh, but that's still not bad money, uh, especially if the project costs half a million to, or a million dollars to make. You know, it's it's decent profit, and we've learned a lot about what makes a successful project. And I know a lot of artists and a lot of studios that are um, in production. Uh, on work that I really believe has uh, ha have a real potential to generate serious money. Um, uh, and one of the bright spots and one of the ways that I think people do that is through location-based uh, exhibition and entertainment uh, centers. Um, if you produce something that is 10 times more exciting than going to a movie... Uh, and I've seen VR that I feel like does that. I think you can get people to go to these new VR centers and spend a lot more money than they'd spend on a movie ticket. Um, and I think that's uh, uh, one model. I think another model is that if you get the throughput right, if you can get a, you know, a lot of people through at a, a, a relatively low ticket price. And there's definitely some models that I've seen that are, are working on how you can get 100 people at a time uh, similar to seeing a movie. And um, so I think there's definitely going to be ways to, to make that work. Um, uh, and all of this is is really encouraging because as soon as we start having um, a few of those experimental centers really take off, um, and we've seen a couple, like Dreamscape is doing really well. I'm really intrigued by 2-Bit Circus, uh, what they're doing. Uh, Meow Wolf is blowing up. Uh, you know, it's on the, uh, right now anyways, it's mostly on the, the non-technical like immersive side. It's more like immersive spaces, but they're building in lots of technology and they're opening up new branches in Las Vegas. They're opening new branches in, I think, D.C. and like everywhere. I mean, the, the scale of Meow Wolf is like shocking. Um, and, and, but I, I consider that immersive entertainment 100%. And uh, so I, I think... 
in general, this trend of people spending money to go have massive, immersive, high quality experiences, I think that's only going to increase. And I think that only helps our industry. So one of the really important rights to bundle into this limited edition print is uh, the right to uh, make money from exhibiting that. So one of the people we see selling these limited edition prints uh, two are uh, owners of these, you know, location-based exhibition centers uh, where, uh, uh, you know, you spend $1,000 perhaps on a limited edition print and that gives you the right to install it on a computer at your, you know, center and make as much money as you want. You, you keep whatever you make. Uh, you own that. You get to install it. Well, that's um, a good investment. It is a good investment. And, it, it, you know, that, that's one model. Another model is to um, have it be more like a lease and, um, the amount of money that you generate is based on, you know, the actual usage of it. So you could definitely structure it that way as well. So um, like you, a percentage of the, the profits would go back to. Yeah, exactly. I okay. mean, like a really common one in the LBE space is, uh, you know, having a certain, um, money amount that you spend per minute. So okay. like, uh, like I think like 12 cents is kind of like the going rate per minute now. Um, and, uh, so you could definitely make those business models work too. But the, the point is that these limited edition prints ought to be a easy vehicle to manage that process of selling to location-based centers. Um, because not only would that location-based center get the right to monetize it in one form or another, but they uh, could also have that be an investment asset where they hold on to it and then they sell it when when it's run the course, right? So like like most location based entertainment, you know, you're going to need to change your lineup in order to stay fresh, right? So right. you know, it's called their refresh. Uh, uh, and with cinema, you know, most movies, you know, hold a matter of weeks. Um, I don't know what the cadence is going to be for VR and AR um, entertainment centers, but um, it'll be something, right? And right. so after three six months, rather than just take a you know uh, a, a loss on that you could actually sell it perhaps for more so uh i think it's an uh, like a, a pitch we could make to um uh that sector of the the industry uh, to help put money into projects that's perfect renee Pinnell, thank you so much and uh as a one text into another it's nice to see you and talk to you thank you for having me on your show it's been an honor and a pleasure